I'd like to reflect a little this afternoon on what it means in the context of our practice to to practice with a tender heart. What that possibility might offer to us. There's a cartoon by uh, actually it's Gary. No, it's Watterson, isn't it? The the Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. You may be familiar with the uh, Calvin and Hobbes. It's a, if you're not, it's a a worthy distraction um, from other things, and uh, involves a six-year-old boy and his pet. Well, not in fact his pet, his stuffed tiger, but who, in his own mind, is very alive and uh, very engaged, and actually quite um, enlightened character, I would suggest. But in any event, in this particular Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. It begins with Calvin and his uh, and Hobbes, the tiger, stuffed tiger, pet tiger, sitting together watching television. And they're sitting there, sort of big square eyes, looking at it. And Calvin's mother calls out from the distance, "Why do you play or do something?" And they sit there, still looking at the television. And there's another sort of encouragement from afar. And still they don't move, they're just watching television. And then the next caption, you see Calvin and Hobbes being thrown out through the front door into presumably the world. And Calvin's retort as he's thrown out is, it's too real. And I think there's something we can recognise in that particular response to being in our lives, in the world. There's a way in which you can feel so much in our face, so much that is challenging or intense, that may feel harsh or uncomfortable, painful even. And as human beings, we are incredibly sensitive. We have a very deep sensitivity, an ability to feel, to be touched, to be affected, to be impacted. And with that degree of sensitivity that we quite naturally have, it can seem very difficult at times, perhaps even impossible, to find a place of ease, of comfort, a place in which we can feel safe from that impingement, from that impact, from that simply contact of, or with life, with experience, with the the realness of it. And it can give rise to a wish, and again, a somewhat understandable wish, when we acknowledge the sensitivity that's there, can give rise to a wish to withdraw from, to remove ourselves, to protect ourselves from life, from contact with life and experience. And sometimes we can conceive of, or perhaps not intentionally, but nonetheless take on the situation of being in retreat or engaging in meditation as a way of escaping or avoiding or or getting a safe distance from our experience, as a way of attempting to protect the sensitivity of our existence from our existence. And sometimes we can notice within that a sense of just wanting to get calm, wanting to get the mind still, because the activity of our mind is one of the things that impinges upon us. So it's not that we're seeking calm or peace as a vehicle for insight and transformation or as a as a foundation for the arising of deep compassion for the world, although these may be part of what's there in that aspiration for calm and stillness of mind. But it can also be that it's just this wish of, just leave me alone. Life, or my mind, just leave me alone. I've had enough. I've had too much, in fact. And this tendency to escape or to want to get away from 
It's something very deeply rooted in us, very well trained in us. And although it may find, or we may find it turns up or translates somehow, almost without us realising, into a way we might practice or engage with our retreat as a sense of avoidance or escape, we also understand and recognise that true practice is not about escaping our life. That true practice is much more about opening to life, removing the obstructions and the limitations that we have created or that seem to have simply arisen between us and life. And this really requires of us that we have the courage and the willingness to allow our hearts to be tender in the face of life. Because unconsciously and again understandably in the experience of pain, in the experience of hurt, in the experience of fear or uncertainty of which life can be full at times and none of our lives are free from. Unconsciously the reaction is to contract, to resist and in effect to harden ourselves against the impingement on our sensitivity. As if we were armouring ourselves against life. There's a hardening, a tightening, a solidifying. And this is something we can notice in our experience as a sense of tightness or hardness or contractedness that, that actually has a sort of a shell-like or an armour-like quality to it. In particular parts of our body we may notice it. Or we might notice instead more of a sense of a numbness or a, a dullness or a, almost a desensitization, wherein we don't really feel too much at all. And again, that can operate as something of a protection, to feel distant, to feel safe or disconnected, because maybe there was a time in our lives when this was the only way we had of handling what would otherwise have been an overwhelming intensity of contact, of experience, that can come in so many ways into our lives. And so although there may have been a, it may have been in a way the only option at some time in our life, and perhaps most likely for us when we were young, we also see that it doesn't really serve us ultimately because there's a there's a loss when we do that when we allow and we don't necessarily consciously allow but when we become hardened or numb to our experience there's also a deep sadness that arises in recognizing this and sometimes also an anger or a frustration around the immense loss that we experience when we're no longer in contact and connection, when we lose the very sensitivity that's so difficult for us to be impinged upon is not easy for us to open to. And yet, to no longer be touched or impacted or affected by what is around us leaves us feeling isolated and leaves us with a sense of loss and a grief for that loss around the sense of connection, of communion, of relatedness that is there, that is expressed and revealed through that being touched in our sensitivity and our sensitivity to that touch. And so although there may have been a time when it served us, and it's not at all to judge the fact that that was so, We also come to a time in our lives and in our practice where we see that it doesn't serve us any longer, that we don't wish to continue to reinforce that pattern or tendency, and where we really wish deeply to contact our own tenderness, to touch the tenderness of our hearts and to be touched therein, to feel that quivering and that sensitivity that runs to our very core and that 
at the same time as it offers us an immense amount, also challenges us to an equal degree. So we're sometimes also a little ambivalent about this. There's a part of us that might think, well, I'm not sure I really want to go there. Like, um, it might be just too real. Going back to Calvin's rather perceptive line or comment there. It might feel like it's going to be too real, like we can't cope with it. But that might also be a memory born of when, as a very young being, we didn't have the resources or the maturity or the conscious access to our capacity to meet our life. And it was too much. Whereas in the present and as adults, we can learn to not be overwhelmed by even that which may seem in first instance to be too much. And it's not as if we necessarily are going to be enthusiastic about this process of, well, yeah, I really want to open up, that's going to be fun. Because it might be a little bit like we know, yeah, I want that, but I'm going to feel something here. And I want that, but I don't want that. It seems. And I had a experience quite some years ago that really spoke to me about this, this whole territory when I was teaching a retreat in America at Insight Meditation Society, a sort of sister centre to Guy House in Massachusetts. And I was going for a walk in the, in the woods down to the pond one lunchtime, I think it was. And there on the path in front of me in the afternoon, as I was walking, I saw a snake. And I stopped dead still because in New Zealand we don't have any snakes. Snakes are not something I have a way to relate to particularly apart from, ah! And that was my first response. It was like, fear! And then it came flooding into my mind, all these thoughts about snakes and Dharma teachings. I was teaching a retreat at the time, so mind was on that territory. And it's sort of like snakes. You've got to be careful not to confuse a rope with a snake because you'll run away from it and it's actually just a rope. How silly. But you've also got to be careful not to confuse a snake with a rope because if you go and grab it, it'll bite you. And there's these kind of stories and metaphors that you know from the Buddha's teaching coming into my mind as I was looking at it. And at the same time as I was actually kind of scared, I was also fascinated because it was quite large. And I was like, wow. And, you know, wild creatures, I love them, usually, at a safe distance. Um, and I was look, looking, and then I noticed it wasn't moving. So I plucked up my courage, took a step closer, and another step, and another step. And I was right up close to this snake, and I realised, not that it wasn't a snake, but it wasn't quite the snake I thought it was, because it was a snake's skin. And at first it was like, oh, whew. I'm safe. And wow, look at that. And then, wow, something had to get out of their skin just here. And reflecting on that, it's like, that can't be easy, climbing out of your skin. And as, I mean, I guess it's reasonably common knowledge, you know, snakes and other creatures also, some other creatures also, have to shed their skin on a regular basis. And I kind of thought, well, what's that like? First of all, why? Well, snake skin, it's safe, it's protected within those scales and that skin. It, it, it allows it to move around without being hurt and provides some, some protection from the world. But by the very fact that it's quite strong and firm, it doesn't stretch. So the snake can't grow inside that skin. The only way the snake can grow is to shed the skin. And I kinda, it's got to kind of get itself out of this very tight-fitting thing. If it doesn't get itself out of its skin it can't grow and if things can't grow they die that's what happens so for its very survival it has to get out of its skin and when it comes out of its skin it can't come out with another whole set of fully formed hard protective skin on because that wouldn't be any any larger than the last one it couldn't be could it so it's got to come out kind of soft maybe even juicy I don't know but certainly unprotected and very, very vulnerable. But it has no choice. In order to live, it must 
find its way out of its skin. And all that just kind of, you know, poured through my mind as a reflection in contemplating that snake skin. And the sense of, wow, for some creatures, it's a, it's, it's a very clear survival requirement to make themselves vulnerable. And in the moment they've shed the skin, or even while they're doing it, probably if a hawk comes past, they're in trouble. But they have no choice. They have to. And I think the same is true for us. I think in the end, we have no choice. And in practice, as we sit in meditation, as we walk, as we pay attention to our experience and the different aspects of the day as we encounter them, as we allow ourselves to come into conscious contact with each moment, with each experience, so far as we're able, the sweet and delightful moments, the scary and unsettling moments, the kind of ordinary or boring moments, all of them. As we allow ourselves to come into contact with them, the very fact of that making contact and being conscious in it, not that we're there for every moment, but each moment that we are, that has a natural softening effect on our hardness, on our rigidity, on the armoring that we create for ourselves unconsciously. Well, mostly unconsciously. And this it's like an organic process of bringing moisture to what is hardened, impacted, compacted, and sort of like dried out. I mean, that's a metaphor, obviously, but it's like the field of our sensitivity becomes without moisture because we aren't inhabiting it fully. And as we inhabit it fully, and this is part of what we're doing here, Without us intending to it, and even if we'd rather it didn't happen, frankly, it happens anyway. As we start to be conscious and pay attention and be present and allow ourselves to see and to feel and to meet where we are and what is happening, there's a, there's a softening, there's an opening that happens, that takes place. When we're in our felt experience, not distant in our minds, not in a story about or an analysis of, but really right up there, intimately, close to, touching. There's, a, there's an opening that happens. There's a, huh, there's a natural re-emergence, a reawakening, we could say, of our sensitivity, of the the more subtle capacity we have for feeling, for touching. And we can see and start to notice, and for quite a few of you coming to speak with us, there's the recognition of how one of the places we harden is not actually with relationship to what we think of is the world, but we actually harden with regard to ourselves. We push away or we reject our own inner experience and we feel somehow distant or cut off from ourselves as if it would be just too painful to be who we are. And yet we're asked here, we're invited, we're encouraged again and again and again to be intimate with, to open to, to touch. There's a poem by Galway Canal which speaks to this. It's entitled St. Francis and the Sow. And it's really, seems to me, when we, when we see how we close down to ourselves, there's something deeply painful in that. And yet the seeing of it is the beginning of the opening. And so to welcome, if we can, with tenderness, 
and with trust that process. The poem reads like this. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that do not flower. For everything flowers from within, of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of a flower, and to retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within, of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering, all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, down through the great broken heart, to the sheer blue milk and dreaminess, spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them. The long, perfect loveliness of Sal. It's not easy to open to ourselves. And sometimes what we encounter is the In a way, what uh, the poem refers to as the great broken heart. That sense of deep painfulness at the really core of our being. And this can be to do with many things. But one of the things that we, I think, almost all of us find when we look is a sense somehow that we are to blame for how things have turned out that somehow my mistakes are the cause of all of this that has been harmful or painful or tragic for the suffering, for the failures and for the confusion that we have encountered in our lives that somehow I've done it wrong and if I had got it right it wouldn't have happened like this. And so there's a a very powerful and profound invitation here to self-forgiveness, to understand and to see how it is that we come to experience life as we do. And I think it's important to reflect on how it is we live our lives, what it is that really moves us in the heart of our being. Because I think if we do, we will see that Everything we do, although perhaps at times foolish and misguided, perhaps at times harmful to others or to ourselves, in the end comes from an attempt to take care of that which we treasure and value in ourselves or others, from an attempt to preserve or protect or advance the well-being of that which we love ourself or others. And yet, much of that attempt to take care of ourself becomes distorted and confused because we don't see clearly what's going on and expresses itself through reactivity of greed or neediness in which we can disregard the needs of others or an anger or frustration in which we can harm others in attempting to protect or preserve our own well-being. And it's understandable that we might feel remorse for such things, for our actions that may have caused harm. But important to understand that in the heart of our being, we really weren't meaning to cause harm to others. We were really just trying to take care of ourselves. To really understand that deeply, And there's an image I find very useful with this as a way of reflecting upon it. 
having reflected on my own life and my own experience to see where I've caused harm to others, that it has come from my own suffering, from my own blind reaction against what was impinging upon me. I came to imagine what it would be like to go for a walk in the woods. And I just invite you to imagine the same as I'm describing this. To be walking in the woods, perhaps one afternoon or evening, and to come across a small puppy. And seeing the puppy and being, having some affection for small creatures, reaching out to stroke the puppy. And imagine if it bites you as you go to stroke it, what your response might be. Words might arise in your mind like bad dog or something stronger. Hand might rise up, the one that wasn't getting bitten, to strike. I'll teach you a lesson. I was being friendly. And then just as we have that reaction, condemnation, judgment of this creature that's bitten us, caused us pain when we were trying to be kind to it, we see that the puppy's foot is caught in one of those spring-loaded traps with jaws that they use for catching small creatures. What would then happen? in our heart and mind. I imagine that rather than being angry with this little creature, we'd instantly understand what was happening. It's not really trying to hurt me. It's in pain. It's suffering. It's afraid. It's confused. It just wants out of this predicament that it's in. And actually it biting me is its cry for help. And what we'd want to do is to actually rescue this creature from the trap. And perhaps have a firm word to whoever put it there, if we should have that opportunity. But understanding that what's happened has come out of this creature's pain, and then seeing that actually we were just about to hit it, mm, coming out of our pain, that's what happens in the world. that we might then feel that we could look into the world with different eyes. When we see the pain in our own hearts that led to our actions, we might also understand that this is so for others. That doesn't mean we necessarily condone what they might do, but that we understand where they're coming from. We don't need to close our hearts to ourselves or to others. And so imagine then, having had this experience some time ago, one forgets that one was ever walking in the woods and met a puppy. And imagine going walking along again. And this time it's in the autumn and the leaves have fallen. And you see a puppy in the woods. You like puppies? Sound familiar? You reach out to stroke it, it bites your hand. Imagine that as you look at the puppy that's biting your hand, you see it, that it's standing shoulder deep in leaves. You can't see its legs. What would it be for you to know in that moment that its foot was in a trap, although you could not see it? What would that require? Because what it seems to me it would require is that we would understand it's not the nature of a puppy to wish to attack or harm one, except if it's in fear or danger or pain. And that we are just the same. That we and such creatures are not so different in that regard. If we can look upon ourselves in that way, then I think there's a, there's a natural possibility of self-forgiveness for the things we may have done that we regret. That also leaves room for us to learn from our mistakes. For us to see that maybe there might have been another way. And of course that too is part of the journey. In terms of self-forgiveness, we sometimes have the rather curious idea that we should have been able to get it right and do it perfectly from the beginning. Have you encountered this perception about yourself before? That somehow you should have been able to know all there was to be known and be perfect at all there was to be done in life. We 
make mistakes in life. We do, all of us. Sometimes enthusiastically and intentionally, sometimes accidentally and without meaning to at all. We act. And often we act from a place of not seeing clearly and truly. And when we do so, suffering is often the result. Blindness leads to suffering. When we're not aware that we don't see clearly, we keep banging into things. And we somehow feel that this isn't right, this shouldn't go like this. I don't want my life to be this progression of bashing into things that I didn't see coming. It's not fair. Why is this happening to me? Why are people doing this to me, as it sometimes feels? And I think we might hear something very useful in a rather lovely Zen story of an encounter between a Zen practitioner and his master. And this uh, very committed and enthusiastic Zen practitioner had an opportunity to meet the great lineage master and ancestor of his uh, tradition. And it was a very special privilege. It didn't come a lot, wouldn't come very often. And he knew he was to be able to ask a question. And so he came very respectful and also a little anxious to the master to ask the question of this venerable and wise and compassionate being. And he said, Master, bowed. He said, can you tell me what is the most important thing to cultivate? The Zen master looked at him. He said, hmm, good judgment. The student looked at him. Thank you, master. Thank you. Uh, how, how do you cultivate good judgment? How do you get good judgment? Zen master looked at him. Hmm. Experience. Oh, thank you, thank you. How do you get experience? Bad judgment. <laughs> Anyone familiar with that practice? I think we probably all are. But sometimes we think it's not practice. We think that's a mistake going on. And yet it's not. If we're willing to have the humility to recognize that what else makes sense here apart from learning and growing? And how else do we do that? By exploring the territory we don't know and we don't yet understand. And how else do we do that? By stumbling around in it, getting to know it. So giving ourselves permission to make mistakes, to get it wrong, to sometimes find we regret what has happened. But if we can learn from it, if we can grow through it, there is no mistake. There is simply the way life unfolds. The only mistake we make, and we also make this one, but the only real mistake we make is believing that we're not supposed to have made mistakes and regarding them as failures rather than as opportunities to learn. And even that one we can see is part of our learning too. So can we hold our own life and heart with tenderness and kindness and forgiveness for how our life has been. To see that we do not need to take upon ourselves the blame for the way life is. We do not need to make ourselves somehow at fault in an attempt to explain the condition of life or to make sense of it. As Kirsten mentioned to me that she'd, in the guided meditation yesterday evening, offered the words of the Buddha where he said that we could look over the whole world and not find another more worthy of ourselves. Such a beautiful statement, such a powerful statement, that we could look the whole world over and not find another being more worthy of our love than ourselves. 
Not saying that we're less, not saying that others are less worthy than ourselves, but that we are not less worthy than others either. What's it like to really let that in? Would you be willing to take the risk of really letting that in? How would that affect you and your life if you did? Perhaps you might, and perhaps, and I trust in fact we all will, come to know what that really means. And again, sometimes such things are better expressed through poetry. So another poem by this one by Derek Walcott entitled Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. Feast on your life. Really allow yourself to have this, that it is. And understand that this, although we could call it a feast, is not without its tenderness and cannot be without its tenderness too. And that this is not somehow a mistake. In opening to the truth of our experience, we see that there is suffering, that there is pain in our own lives and stories, in the lives of everyone else. If we take the time to listen, we hear so many stories, so many tragedies that touch each life and every life, perhaps different in their particularity, but universal in their nature. And the Buddha spoke of this as something we need to really understand. Not because it's somehow bad news, but because if we understand it, we can respond to it appropriately. The Buddha spoke of what we encounter in being embodied in this journey of incarnation, of birth, of aging, of sickness, of death. And that all of us encounter these things None of these things are easy for us. We all go through them. The Buddha spoke of what we experience in our hearts. Pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation and despair. And it's like, whew, that sounds hard, doesn't it? And yet, because we have hearts that love and care, and that we are at times separated from that which we love and care from, it cannot be that we would not experience these things in life. And if you ever thought that maybe you could have, I suggest reflect on it like this. If we love and care for something in life, whatever it must be, whatever it is, whether ourselves, another, a situation, a thing, a being, a creature, whatever it is that we are touched by, that we allow our heart to open to, that we love, at some point we will be separated from it through intentional choices, through accident, through death. One way or another, we will part from that. And in that parting, there will be sadness, there will be sorrow, there will be loss and grief. It cannot be, having loved, that when we lose, there is that there. And if we don't open our heart, allow ourselves to be touched, to love something, someone, ourself, another, If we don't allow that to happen at all in our life, 
that, when we become aware of it, will be a cause of sorrow, of pain, of grief, of loss. So really, we're all going to encounter this. There is no other option. And yet that in itself again is not bad news. Because we can encounter that condition from a place of tenderness and understanding. When we don't take the fact that sorrow or pain or grief has arisen in my heart as evidence that somehow there's something wrong with me, when we don't use it to confirm an image or an idea about who I am that somehow is aberrant, that is mistaken, that is a failure or not good enough in some way. When we see, of course, having a heart that knows love, it will also know loss and sorrow. And this is how life is. This is its beauty and its tenderness together. And its poignancy. And this is so. The Buddha also spoke about our minds. We have these minds. And how we experience this. That we are associated with with things we don't like. We're separated from things we do like. And we don't always get what we want. Have you noticed how annoying that is? When you don't get what you want? Mm. It's hard, isn't it? And yet we all experience this. What it is that you want might be different than what it is that I want, but we all know the experience of sometimes, and too many times, not getting it. So it's not because we've done something wrong. It's not because something's wrong with the world or wrong with other people or wrong with you or me. It's this is how life is. But that's not all that life is. It's part of what life is. And if we open to this poignant tenderness that is in life, we allow our heart to be pierced. And in that piercing, there's an opening of our heart. There's an opening that we deeply yearn for, that we deeply grieve the loss of, that is much more painful in its loss than ever the tenderness or the sensitivity of the impacts we've closed down to avoid could have been. And so this opening and tenderness is the... It's really the ground of a deep kindness for life, a deep kindness towards ourselves. Acknowledging that there is this in life that is painful. Without forming a conclusion about ourselves as a result. Then we're just left in this place of tenderness. And again, turning to poetry, Naomi Shihab Nye poem entitled Kindness. She writes, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. It is only kindness that ties your shoes, that sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. 
when we really inhabit the tenderness of our hearts. It is only kindness that makes sense anymore. For ourselves, for each other. And so we practice in the spirit. We have the formal practice of loving-kindness meditation where we consciously connect with and cultivate that sense of caring and well-wishing. We'll be continuing with that practice again this evening. But equally in the day as we go through the sitting and the walking and the activities, that sense of caring, of kindness, of engaging in what we engage in with that wish for well-being, for happiness, for healing and wholeness, to meet each experience from a place of love and kindness, so far as we are able to do so, is to allow the tenderness of our heart to be expressed and to be lived, and to not any longer be felt as a vulnerability, but in fact to reveal itself as one of the most profound sources of strength and safety that we have. The tenderness of our heart when we can inhabit it fully in fact gives us a a strength we cannot imagine and that the attempt to defend ourselves through rigidity and hardening is a very poor substitute for. And yet it seems that there's a risk in this, doesn't there? The risk of kindness, of tenderness to ourselves, to others, to the world. The risk of softening of becoming less rigid, of losing our hard defining boundaries, is is that we feel or that we fear or that we imagine we'll become vulnerable, undefended, unprotected. And perhaps our history has told us that that is not wise, not a wise condition to place ourselves in. And yet, although we may fear that this tenderness of heart would lead to dissolving into mush or an undifferentiated and kind of lost or insubstantial vulnerability. In fact, if we explore it, if we allow ourselves, if we have the courage and the deep love and respect for our life that supports us to explore this tender heart, it has a It has a substantiality to it, a fluid substantiality. And even we could say a solidity that is not of the nature of hardness or rigidity, but solidity. When we allow ourselves to be open, to be deeply sensitive and in touch with the aliveness that is in this, the sense of being boundaried of being limited, begins to dissolve. And the tenderness and sensitivity reveals itself as simply a precursor or the expression and emanation of an openness, of an unbounded openness that we can inhabit without limitation from which and through which we can engage with the world, both receiving it wholeheartedly and unconditionally and responding to it naturally. This openness that is boundless, that is tender and sensitive and yet at the same time substantial and reliable, This openness is the invitation of our practice. And the natural expression of our awakening hearts as we come to know more and more fully and truly for ourselves. (coughs) What it is that awakens what it is 
that is awake already. So may we all, through our practice here together and in our lives, come to deeply trust in our tender hearts and to trust in our lives as they unfold, in life itself as it awakens within us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.